You are listening to Primary Care Perspectives, a podcast where pediatric experts from the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia discuss the primary care issues that are on their mind and the hot topics that all pediatricians see affecting their daily practice. This podcast is for general informational and educational purposes only and is not to be considered as medical advice for any particular patient. Clinicians must rely on their own informed clinical judgment in making recommendations to their patients. Hi, I'm Dr. Katie Lockwood, a primary care pediatrician at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, and I'm here today with Dr. Jane Gould, a pediatric TB consultant for the Philadelphia Department of Public Health, and we're talking today about tuberculosis. Thank you so much for joining me, Dr. Gould. Thank you very much for inviting me. So we're talking about tuberculosis, which is a disease that results from mycobacterium tuberculosis that attacks the lungs but could attack any part of the body. We know that if it's not treated properly, TB disease can be fatal and was once the leading cause of death in the U.S. The first medications used to treat TB were discovered back in the 1940s and afterward TB began to decrease in the U.S. But between 1985 and 1992, there was an increase in the number of TB cases when the U.S. relaxed their TB control efforts. Now, with increased funding and attention to the TB problem, there has been a steady decline in the number of persons with TB since 1993. So now that we have TB control measures and medications to treat TB, why is it still a problem in the U.S.? Well, that's a really great question. And unfortunately, um, there was a slight increase in 2015 nationally in TB disease rates compared to 2014. So we don't know if that trend is going to continue. Time will tell. Um, But TB is still a problem in many regions of the world, a big problem. And because we're an immigrant country, we're going to always see TB here. Um, the, The interesting dogma used to be that if you had latent TB and you were immigrating to the United States, that you would develop your TB disease within five years of immigrating. Hmm. And now we're not, we're not seeing that anymore. I would say for the last about four years, we're seeing it beyond five years. Hmm. The risk is still there beyond five years of immigrating. Hmm. And so that's from reactivation. Nobody really knows all the mechanisms that um, promote reactivation, um, but stress is definitely thought to be one of them. So it could be that the stress of immigration doesn't leave in five years. It it extends beyond that. Um, But just to give you some epidemiology for Philadelphia, Mm -hmm. um, in 2016, the Philadelphia TB disease rate was 3.5 times the state rate. Mm -hmm. We saw two additional cases compared with the number diagnosed in 2015. So we had 70... Um, 71 cases in 2015 and 73 cases in 2016. And most of these cases occurred in foreign-born persons from the WHO region of the world um, called the Western Pacific region. Mm -hmm. So those are countries such as China, the Philippines, Vietnam, Laos, Cambodia. Mm -hmm. Uh, By race and ethnicity, TB is more commonly seen in black and Asian populations in Philadelphia. Mm. And pediatric cases are only comprise about 9% of the total cases in 2016. Um, The the other, uh, so, you know, we were talking about latent TB and immigration. A lot of foreign countries don't treat latent TB. Mm. It's it's resource intensive and it costs a lot of money. It's a luxury, actually, Mm -hmm. to be able to 
treat latent TB. We're very fortunate in this country that we can. Right. So, um, unfortunately, even in this country, completion rates in adults for latent TB chemoprophylaxis are only 50%. Hmm. And even if you look at adults diagnosed with latent TB through contact tracing, those are the highest risk adults mm -hmm. for developing disease, like mm -hmm. reactivating, because it implies that it's recent acquisition of latent TB infection. Even those initiation of chemoprophylaxis, the rate is only about 65% nationally, and of the ones that initiate, only half of them, or even less than half, mm -hmm. will complete. There's yeah. definitely room for improvement there. Yeah, definitely. So who, who besides foreign-born people are at high risk for developing tuberculosis? Yeah, so those who are HIV positive or have other immunocompromising conditions, diabetes, mm -hmm. and actually diabetes has surpassed HIV hmm. as the number one risk factor for developing TB disease. Extremes of age, so children less than five years of age and the elderly, those who are recent contacts or have been diagnosed with latent TB infection within the last two years, mm -hmm. and patients that were not appropriately treated in the past. Mm -hmm. So sh people who received short regimens or where there was never any microbiology to confirm susceptibility and mm -hmm. they were given drugs empirically and we ne you, know, you don't know if they were treated properly. Mm -hmm. Okay. <clears throat> we talked about how some countries don't treat latent TB, but we know that a lot of them do give the BCG vaccine. Mm -hmm. And BCG is a vaccine for TB that's not routinely given in the United States. With more drug resistance creeping up, do you think there's ever gonna be a, a time when healthcare workers are going to uh, benefit from a BCG vaccination? Yeah, um, well, it's definitely not recommended at this point, and hopefully it'll never be recommended any time in the future. Um, the CDC does recommend that in situations where there's high rates of both INH and rifampin resistance, that's MDR, mm -hmm. multidrug resistant TB, um, and continued risk of exposure such that, let's say you're a healthcare worker and you work specifically on a TB ward mm -hmm. uh, or in a pulmonary department that sees a lot of TB and that the, if there was a high rate of MDR-TB, Mm -hmm. then you might consider using BCG vaccination in those healthcare workers. So mm -hmm. very specific right. population of healthcare workers. So no BCG vaccine for me. Right. <laughs> and, and also in 2016, MDR rates in Philadelphia for, in the culture positive cases were quite low, thankfully. Good. Only 3% in foreign born persons and 0% in US born persons. Mm -hmm. So that's good. Yeah, great news for Philadelphia. Yeah. Um, what questions should I ask patients to screen for their tuberculosis risk? Should I be asking about things like homelessness or um, parents being in prison or having HIV? Or what, what are the right questions to get at the population that I'm looking to screen? Yeah, so the American Academy of Pediatrics really only has four validated risk assessment questions. Um, these are questions that have been validated, mm -hmm. right? So it has a family member or contact had TB disease. Has a family member been diagnosed with a positive skin test or a gamma interferon release assay? Mm -hmm. Was the child born in a high-risk country? And that's countries other than the U.S., Canada, Australia, New Zealand, or Western or Northern European countries? Mm -hmm. Or did they travel and stay in a high-risk country for greater than or equal to seven days? Those are really the validated questions. Mm -hmm. 
I think as a pediatrician, though, if you are concerned about your patient who's been in and out of shelters, then go ahead, mm-hmm. you know, screen. Right. If, you know, really the, the prison question mm-hmm. is really, um, you know, a person who's had repeated exposure mm. to the prisoner. And, and that's not going to be a child that's visiting every once in a while, right. you know, so, okay. so I don't think that's so much of an issue. And all prisoners get um, screened with skin tests upon entry to prison and then when they leave. Okay. Yeah. Great. So that's, that's helpful that there's only those four questions. And yeah. if the child was foreign born and they had a negative skin test since coming to the U.S. and they have not returned to their birth country, then we don't have to keep screening them. Correct. If I think you can. I think it's a good idea to get into the habit of screening with questions, mm-hmm. to ask about: Are there persons from that birth country that are coming and staying in the home for extended periods of time, like grandma and grandpa or something like that, who might come right. from Liberia and stay, let's say, here mm-hmm. uh, to visit their family. Great. So that would be a risk. And in terms of screening tests, you already mentioned two, the tuberculin skin test and the IGRA. So who might benefit more from one over the other? So when, yeah. when do I do the IGRA versus the skin test? So again, the American Academy of Pediatrics mm-hmm. still recommends that the preferred screening test for children less than five years of age is a tuberculin skin test, mm-hmm. just because gamma interferon release assays have not been well studied mm-hmm. in that population. And there is a higher risk of getting an indeterminate or borderline, depending upon which test you use, the T-spot TB test or the quantiferon gold mm-hmm. in that age group. And that's not a negative, so what do you do with that? Right. So, so the preferred test under five is a skin test. Mm-hmm. If they're five and older, you might want to use a gamma interferon release assay test mm-hmm. because uh, like if you're concerned that there's going to be poor rates of return mm-hmm. uh, or if the patients received BCG vaccine. Mm-hmm. Uh, bearing in mind, gamma interferon release assays are more expensive. Right. Um, patients who were born outside of the U.S. and have had a BCG vaccine, my understanding is that you always sort of ignore that when you're interpreting the tuberculin skin test. The tricky thing is when they have a positive tuberculin skin test and the, sometimes the parent is convinced that it's from the BCG vaccine and that under five age, yeah. it can be really tricky to yeah. sort that out. Definitely. So how do we interpret these skin tests in kids yeah. who might have had a BCG? So U.S. physicians should ignore the history of the BCG when interpreting a skin test, even in a young child, because think about who, which countries give BCG vaccine. It's the countries where TB is very common, mm-hmm. okay? So the risk that that child's been infected is high. And because, mm-hmm. yes, you're right, you're not clairvoyant, you can't tell for sure if that skin test is positive because it's a false positive from BCG or the child is truly infected with TB. Right. Um, they say, you know, just err on the side that it might be a true positive and treat, especially because the medications used for chemoprophylaxis in children are very well tolerated. Mm-hmm. And BCG vaccine really, I would say in the first two years after BCG vaccine is the time when it's most likely to cause a false positive. Mm-hmm. Beyond two years, beyond getting that vaccine, it's unlikely mm-hmm. to give you a false positive. Okay, good to know. If a parent isn't sure whether or not their child got the BCG vaccine in their country, is there a way for me to find out whether 
one is TB endemic to that country and whether or not they give the BCG vaccine. Yeah, there's a great website that pediatricians can go to. It's the bcgatlas.org website, and it's managed out of Montreal. And you basically just type in the country that your patient is from, and up will come their whole BCG protocols. So right. which BCG they use, what year they started, when do they give the vaccine? Do they give boosters? Things mm. like that. So it's very helpful. Great. That's a great website to know about. So bcgatlas.org. Yes. Okay. Once someone has had a positive skin test and a normal chest x-ray and has been treated for latent TB, how do you then screen for new TB exposures in the future? That's a great question. And usually for a pediatrician, you would be screening by questioning. Mm -hmm. Okay and symptom screening. So questioning about, um, did anybody recently get exposed? Uh, did they recently get treated for latent TB? Did anybody have a chronic cough in the house? Anybody with a recent diagnosis of TB disease? Mm -hmm. Things like that. Mm -hmm. um, and of course, the skin test and the IGRA will still be positive, even if the child was appropriately given chemoprophylaxis. So right. you can't repeat that. It's right. still gonna be positive. And nobody would recommend that you would repeat that or look at a change in the quantity, uh, you know, on a gamma interferon release assay, let's say. That hasn't been studied and is not recommended to use it that way. Mm -hmm. um, so it's really questioning and symptom screening. Now, in TB control, if we obtain a history um, of such a child, so a child with a, a known skin test that's positive who received appropriate chemoprophylaxis, who now has been re-exposed to TB disease. Mm -hmm. So we're finding this child, let's say, through contact tracing of an adult index case with communicable TB. Mm -hmm. um, we would, the best way to think about it is we would divide those kids into two groups. Those that are greater than five years old and immunocompetent, mm -hmm. if they've had latent TB and been treated, you could consider them essentially protected. Mm and we wouldn't do anything with them. We would just observe them, as long as they're asymptomatic, okay? okay? Mm -hmm. In children who are less than five or immunocompromised, if they have symptoms, clearly we're gonna treat them for TB, we're gonna go down the whole TB disease pathway, right. try to get specimens to confirm that, and then treat TB disease. If they're asymptomatic, then all bets are off, we would discount the history that they had been treated for latent TB, mm. and we would retreat for latent TB to protect them. Do you understand okay. what I'm... Would you do a chest X-ray again? We might. Okay. You know, I mean, certainly if the child had symptoms, mm -hmm. we would. Mm -hmm. But in, in, you could think about latent TB as almost like a form of natural vaccination. Mm. So the child's been infected with the organism. You gave the chemoprophylaxis, which hopefully the intention Mm -hmm. is to kill the organism, get it out of the body, but the immune system mm -hmm. has remembered it. Mm -hmm. And that's why you still have a positive skin test and IGRA after treatment, mm -hmm. okay? So but in the, the less than five crowd, they're not necessarily as immune, uh, immunocompetent just correct. naturally yet. Right, right. And so what I'm talking about is like household mm -hmm. contacts. Close contacts. Close contacts, high risk mm -hmm. situation. Now we would also consider a high-risk situation, non-tourist travel for greater than seven days. So okay. if they went to go visit grandma and grandpa in, you know, 
their birth country, mm -hmm. and they stayed for months mm -hmm. in the home. Mm -hmm. seeing relatives, seeing family, friends, right? Right. That's a higher risk. We would do the same sort of thing and mm -hmm. um, same approach. Great. So sometimes we get patients who come in who are going to volunteer at a hospital or um, going to a summer camp or something and it requests a two-step test. So how does this work and why would you ever need a two-step test? Yeah. So a two-step test is done to increase the likelihood of identifying remote TB mm. infection. And it's done by placing the first tuberculin skin test, and then if that's negative, two to three weeks later, placing a second one. Mm -hmm. And if that one's negative, they're done. They're not, they didn't have remote infection. Mm -hmm. um, if the second one is positive, then it's considered real and mm -hmm. they need a chest x-ray. Mm -hmm. um, and this is to exploit the, the phenomena of boostering. Mm -hmm that skin tests um, are subject to. So two examples where we would do two-step testing include, as you suggest, let's say, an adult who wants to volunteer in a hospital or an adult who's a new hire mm -hmm. in a hospital mm -hmm. or healthcare setting. Um, also, we do it in our contact evaluations for adults mm -hmm. in, the, in a household mm -hmm. um, or workplace. Yep. If my patient has a positive tuberculin skin test, what other testing should I do before I initiate treatment for latent TB? Yeah, so the first thing you wanna do is do um, a good history and physical, and make sure the patient doesn't have any signs or symptoms of TB disease, mm -hmm. and then you wanna get a chest X-ray, mm -hmm. ideally a PA and lateral. Mm -hmm. um, and so children or anybody with latent TB infection is asymptomatic, with a negative chest x-ray, mm -hmm. okay? They are not contagious. Right. Um, and, uh, you know, if the child's symptomatic, then he or she may have either pulmonary or extrapulmonary TB. So your testing would be driven towards trying to make the diagnosis, and usually that's done on the, in the inpatient arena, right. and usually with infectious diseases consultation mm -hmm. to help with that. Um, but the really important thing is, we must do everything possible to rule out TB disease mm -hmm. before we treat for presumably latent TB infection. Mm -hmm. Because remember, we're only using one drug for latent TB, and if we are inadvertently have a patient with TB disease that we haven't diagnosed and we're giving them one drug, we can mm -hmm. select for drug resistance. Right, and what one, one drug are you using now in Philadelphia? Yeah, so um, for Children, we have a couple of different options. Mm -hmm. um, we can use isoniazid daily mm -hmm. um, via direct observed preventative therapy using our field staff, or a pediatrician can use it, what we call self-administered therapy, mm -hmm. SAT, okay? Mm -hmm. And that's for nine months. We don't use the six-month regimen mm -hmm. uh, because it's been found to be inferior to the nine-month regimen. Mm -hmm. You can use, IN we can use INH biweekly. Mm -hmm. Um, but that's only if we're using direct-observed preventative therapy. A pediatrician doing SAT on a patient should not use a bi-weekly mm -hmm. regimen because people cannot remember, oh, it's Thursday, I need to take my medicine, okay? Right. Um, so then we, can all, we have also rifampin. So in a patient less than 12, we use rifampin once daily for six months, mm -hmm. and if they're 12 years of age or older, we use once daily for four months. Wow. That's the adult regimen. Um, so that significantly shortens mm -hmm. the chemoprophylaxis treatment 
length. So we tend to use a lot of rifampin. We use it in patients who have come from countries where the INH resistance rate is higher than in the United States. Mm -hmm. Or um, if we get a history that they've been exposed to somebody who had INH resistant um, TB disease, or if they've been intolerant in the past to INH. Mm -hmm. um, you know, INH is the gold standard and it's all the other drugs are compared to that. But we, we really try to um, use the field staff to medicate, especially our young children, less than five, mm -hmm. um, because not only can we ensure compliance that way, but we want our field staff to do household investigations to look for the adult index case who maybe made the child mm -hmm. have latent TB infection. Right. Before starting a patient on uh, either INH or rifampin, do I need to do any blood work like a liver function test or other screening for other infectious diseases? Yeah, so we recommend um, a complete blood count mm -hmm. with differential and mm -hmm. platelets, um, serum transaminases, mm -hmm. and hepatitis B, C, and HIV testing. Okay. Um, and uh, once you start medication, you can just follow the patient clinically mm -hmm. because these drugs are very well tolerated mm -hmm. in children. Mm -hmm. So if you get signs or symptoms of something, you know, like um, that would make you concerned that the patient might be developing a chemical hepatitis or something, you know, then you can do testing, but mm -hmm. you don't do routine testing. Okay, so just the baseline. Yeah, they're very well tolerated, these drugs. Great. Can you tell us a little bit about the Lawrence F. Flick Memorial Center and what services it provides? Yeah, so um, the Flick Clinic is named after Dr. Lawrence Flick, who was a um, physician who dedicated his life to um, tuberculosis back in the 1800s. Mm -hmm. And this was before we had any medications yeah. that could treat TB. And he actually started the sanatorium movement in Pennsylvania, mm -hmm. and he was a big advocate for case registration. Before him, none of the cases were being registered in mm -hmm. Philadelphia, so nobody knew what the burden of disease was. Nobody knew about secondary cases. Mm -hmm. um, so he was, uh, and also very instrumental in starting organizations dedicated to teaching the lay population and physicians or healthcare workers about tuberculosis. And that organization, that society, was the forerunner of the American Lung Association. Hmm. So he was very prominent in the field, and unfortunately he ended up dying of tuberculosis. But uh, the services we provide at the Flick Clinic include medical evaluations, mm -hmm. we do lab testing, we can perform sputum induction in an induction chamber, wow. and the pediatric TB clinic is held once a week and it's on a different day than adult clinics, so we really try to keep the adults yeah. and children separate. Where is the Flick Clinic located in the city? Yeah, it's located at uh, 13th and Spruce in the American Lung Association building. Okay. It has DOT written on the door. You can't miss it. Okay. <laughs> so you mentioned that you, you recommend DOT for the kids less than five. So who do I need to report to the local TB control program? How do I do that? And is it just the kids under five or is it everybody? Yeah, so um, all... Uh, physicians in Philadelphia are required to report any TB disease suspects or confirmed patients. Mm -hmm. And they can do that by picking up the phone and mm -hmm. calling the public health department. We ask that all area pediatricians um, send us a consult for all children less than five years of age that they diagnose latent TB infection on. 
because number one, we want to use our field staff to ensure medication compliance, and mm -hmm. number two, we want to evaluate the household if it's indicated. Mm -hmm. We so pediatricians can get the consult form mm -hmm. from the website, mm -hmm. TB Control website, the Philadelphia Department of Public Health, mm -hmm. and you fill out all the information. You fax it to TB Control, and then I will give you recommendations on what drug to start, how long to treat, mm -hmm. and whether or not I think the patient should be followed at the Flick Clinic. Mm -hmm. And pretty much any child under five years of age, I'm going to ask that they come to the Flick Clinic so mm -hmm. we can ensure they get medicated properly. Mm -hmm. And a pediatrician can send me a consult on any age child if they have concerns, let's say, that uh, like they don't know what drug to pick or how long to treat or they're suspicious that they're not, the patient's not going to be compliant. Mm -hmm. And then sometimes we'll try to use the school nurses to do school DOPT, mm -hmm. if great. the school has a school nurse. Right. Um, and, uh, you know, that's just to ensure that we can get the job done. Thank you so much for joining me today to talk about tuberculosis and for your service to the kids in the city of Philadelphia. We've learned a lot today about tuberculosis. I'll put some of the resources that you mentioned on our website, and we know that everyone can also find you through the um, Philadelphia Department of Public Health TB Control Program and their website, which I've taken a look at recently, is very easy to navigate. So that's a great resource for us to use as well. So thank you for joining us, and hopefully we won't have too many kids to send you, but it's good to know there's a place to send them when we need them. Well, thank you very much, Dr. Lockwood. It was thank my you. pleasure. Thanks. Thank you for listening to this episode of Primary Care Perspectives. You can download and subscribe to future episodes on iTunes or visit chop.edu slash pcppodcasts for a listing of all episodes. I look forward to our next chat.